I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. We just completed the Penn Wharton Startup Challenge and Startup Showcase, and we had a whole set of amazing competitors, and we ended up with with three winners, uh, the first, second, and third prize in the Startup Challenge. And today, we are so lucky to have all three teams here in the studio to talk about their ventures and their experiences. And I'm extremely lucky to be joined now in the studio by the winners of the Startup Challenge, Joseph Kwan and Nikhil Srivastava, co-founders of Twine. Guys, thanks for coming in. Thank thanks you. for having us. Congratulations. How's it feel? Uh, it feels incredible. The Pretty feeling still hasn't worn off. Yeah. Nikhil, did you take the weekend off? Uh, I took Friday night off. Yeah. And then back to work Saturday morning. <laughs> wow. How about you, Joseph? Same thing. Uh, yeah. Had a little bit of champagne to celebrate on Friday. And then back over the weekend, was back to the grind. Yeah. So you guys, it's, it's actually good timing because you're just about to graduate. That's right. Right? So, it, I mean, we deliberately, of course, put the startup challenge at the end of the year. But but it's not always the case that it's graduating students who, who are the winners. So it's nice nice coincidence in that, in that case. Um, let's start with the elevator pitch. So, which I know you, as a result of just having finished a competition. <laughs> yeah. I can do your elevator pitch because I've heard, you know, you've been doing it so many times. But yeah. Joseph, give us the elevator pitch for Twine Labs. But before you do that, let me, yeah. you, you do have a website, right? It's twinelabs.com. That's right. All right, Joseph, give us the elevator pitch. I don't know if I'm more nervous to do it on live here or uh, no one, for the no pitch one's competition. Listening. Don't worry, no one's listening. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Twine is HR software specifically for internal hiring. Mm-hmm. We've noticed that really large companies have great tools for external hiring like LinkedIn. At the same time, they sit on pretty rich databases about their internal employees Mm -hmm. and no good analytics or recommendation layer that sits on top of that to actually help them find the best internal candidates or internal employees. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what we've built. We've built, first of all, Twine as connective tissue that will aggregate data from a number of different HR databases. Your ATS, which is your applicant tracking system, your HRIS, your human resources information systems, your LMS, your learning management systems, to create this consolidated view and unified profile of all the open roles that are inside your organization and every single employee that could fit those roles. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing we've actually built is this analytics and recommendation layer that sits on top of that data, makes it make really, really easy for any recruiter or hiring manager to log into Twine systems, essentially see, hey, here are the roles or requisitions that I'm recruiting for. Here's this algorithmically generated smart list of five, 10 recommendations of people I should be tapping for those roles. It's really, really important for us to build this because we're really building this on top of a a sea change inside the labor market. Mm -hmm. We're noticing millennials that are jumping ship every two or three years because they feel like they're outgrowing their roles or outgrowing their teams. And the number one reason why they're leaving these companies is because they're just looking for new roles inside of new companies. Yeah. So it turns out the research shows that if you can actually find a better fitting role for these employees right before they leave, you can actually preempt a lot of that employee attrition. Mm -hmm. So we do research with uh, actually one of our current clients, Nielsen, that's proven that Anytime you rotate or um, lateral or promote a person inside an organization, their people analytics team has actually found that that employee is about 48 to 60 percent less likely to leave. Mm -hmm. In other words, better internal mobility, better internal hiring, single most powerful way to actually reduce employee attrition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So on top of that, we basically started building this product. Close Nielsen is our first major strategic partner and, um, and and customer, paying customer. And from there, I've just been growing it ever since. Yeah. So Nikhil, let me ask you, the, it, many people 
at least a lot of my students, and particularly I'm thinking of people in, in our executive MBA program, they often feel compelled to switch jobs because they feel like they're not respected within their existing organization. If they really they go back to business school, they feel like they've made this quantum improvement in skills, and there's, they get responses like, well, you're a grade 27. We could maybe get you to a grade 28 and give you a 4% raise. Mm-hmm. And that's not what they're looking for. To what extent is that a barrier within organizations? And will organizations have to change in order to take advantage of this kind of capability? Yeah, yeah for sure. So I think there is and will always be a subset of employees, typically a little later in their careers, who are looking for a true industry change mm-hmm. for which a formal education is often the right move. Mm-hmm. So expose their expose them to new networks and new opportunities. But more and more we're seeing employees actually not getting formal training for specific roles, but getting on the job or experiential training of being moved from a marketing position into a sales position or into an operations position. And the industry is finding that that's really one of the best ways of making sure that you have the best employees in the right roles Mm -hmm. is to always be examining what skills and competencies they're picking up on the job and making sure that instead of up and out, it's up and, hey, here's an opening over here for someone who's been four years in marketing. Maybe you're going to be moving into a management position. Let's keep you inside this, this organization, but making sure that you're uh, moving up in your own career. Mm-hmm. Um, Joseph, let me turn this next question to you. I, m- my son recently switched jobs, and in his previous job, he went, changed his LinkedIn profile, as you do before you're looking for a job. Yeah. Next thing you know, his boss came over and <laughs> said, hey, uh, everything okay? I just want to make sure we're doing what you want. And, and, and I mean, that sort of is funny in itself. But what I was getting at is, your boss, however, is highly conflicted, right? Because you're you're still leaving your boss, mm-hmm. right? And and I can imagine it being very difficult to start that conversation within the corporation because if you don't find the opportunity, it's like, yeah, well, I sort of was looking, but it didn't work out, so I'm stuck back with you, yeah. right? So how do you manage that? Yeah, you yeah. hit the nail on that. One yeah. of those components that we certainly have to deal with is cultural inertia. Mm-hmm. So how do you overcome that across a number of fronts? And manager inertia is certainly one of them. Uh, you have a manager that essentially feels like they trained, developed this person. They've grown with your organization. Now this talent essentially belongs to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always the flip side of being a high performer is that your manager sometimes want to retain you in this organization. Right. Um, realistically, first of all, um, we've been doing a fair amount of research and actually building out kind of a base of marketing collateral that we can take out to our clients to say, hey, this is a research. This is how it proves that it's better for your organization in the long run, mm-hmm. and using that to basically sh- socialize down the organization. Mm-hmm. The more realistic kind of shorter-term uh, panacea for us is really we basically go to organizations that are the top 10% of the innovator slash early adopter curve. Mm-hmm. They're really very forward-thinking about HR, really forward-thinking about people analytics, and intrinsically, a lot of times have cultures of actually promoting from within and actually facilitating this Interesting. from within. Interesting. So yeah. Nielsen is one of those prototypical examples where they have a top-down push that really focuses heavily on internal mobility, heavily on internal recruiting, and they recognize that losing an employee to another division inside your organization is much lose, much better than losing them to a competitor altogether. Uh, let me just follow up on that, uh, Joseph. How do you get those first two customers to adopt? Because you yeah. you know you have nothing, and you're two students, right? <laughs> so so it's even worse for you guys, right? Like you want, <laughs> you want me to turn over my internal HR 
activities to to a student project, right? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, how, how how do you and and I, I'm really I want to speak to our listeners here. How do you find those early adopters, those first few companies? Yeah. yeah. So as a starting point, we don't frame it as a student project. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I was just teasing. You. <laughs> no, no, of course. Um, a couple of ways. Well, one actually through Wharton. Funny enough, because yeah. we had actually met uh, our initial a couple of our initial kind of prospects, conversations that we had, and eventually customers like Nielsen through the Wharton People Analytics Conference. Mm. So to a certain extent, they're going to be demarcated by their presence at forward-thinking events like the Wharton yeah. People Analytics Conference, where you're going to have people that are predisposed to thinking about these people analytics issues and mm. forward-thinking about these cultural issues attend these events. So that's certainly one way. Uh, the second is actually just proving the ROI behind it and mm-hmm. really proving the value behind it. So mm-hmm. Uh, we've noticed that the companies that tend to bite onto this and latch onto this idea the most are companies that, first of all, had this have these people analytics groups, but then two more importantly have actually done the research that shows that internal mobility is this really powerful way to reduce your employee attrition mm-hmm. and reduce your employee turnover. That kind of core piece of research and that fundamental underpinning behind our product uh, just gives us that thesis alignment from early on. So if you can find those companies, a lot of times who already have hired the right people inside the organization to lead and spearhead these initiatives, um, you can get some early traction with those customers. Yeah, uh, Nikhil, tell us a little bit about the origin story. Were you there at the beginning? I or was pretty there. close? All right, yeah. so how did, where did it come? Where's the idea come from? So Joseph and I actually met about two years ago. Mm-hmm. So coming into the Wharton MBA program, mm-hmm. uh, First Round Capital had a founder's retreat mm-hmm. for students interested in entrepreneurship. So we met there. Oh, that's even before school starts. It's like August, yeah. Yeah. It's in August, yeah. 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 So we met there. We ended up chatting um, through the fall, and we actually ended up working on a couple side projects together. Mm. So we organized some entrepreneurship events. Uh, We built an MVP of a project that we launched at Wharton, uh, signed up about half the student body in a few days. Um, So we knew that we could work together. We Mm -hmm. knew our heads were in the same places. Uh, We ended up starting Twine a little over a year ago, Mm -hmm. and... The origin story was a people matching engine to run networking and mentorship programs mm-hmm. inside of large companies. Mm-hmm. But when we went to market, we talked to our first 30, 40 potential customers. And the feedback we got was, this is great technology, but what we really need to do is match people not to the right mentors, but to, to the right new positions and new roles. Hmm. Internal mobility is a big strategic issue for a lot of the people we talked to. And we saw an opportunity in the market to apply this technology to fit that solution. Mm-hmm. And then since then, it's just been uh, a lot of company building, a lot of product building, mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, going out to the market and trying to sign up customers. Yeah, so let's see if we can underscore the what the approach you took there. So you had a hypothesis about a, a market need, which was the mentor, connecting mentors mm-hmm. to mentees. You invested some effort to build, you called it MVP, minimum viable product. And... And then you went ahead and and launched that or demoed it, demoed it with customers. So right? we demoed it with customers. We actually launched it and we closed a first our first few um, small and medium sized businesses. Okay, so you even had some customers. Yeah, with that exactly. And then what was the process of getting? So so just to underscore what I think is is best practices there was not getting too wedded to a particular approach before you launched something and got some feedback. So that would be arguably best practice, especially in this kind of uh, uh, you know, software service or mm-hmm. software and service related businesses. Um, so you did that. H- how much had you invested to get to the point where you could get that feedback, I- either in time or, or, or money? Yeah. 
So we had invested um, a good amount of time, mm-hmm. uh, not too much money. Between the two of us, we had – so my background is on the technical side. Yeah. And we'd worked with some students inside the ecosystem and, and built the MVP. Yeah. So you did that with sweat, largely yep. with sweat. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the point there, I mean, there's a whole bunch of points there, but but the main point I want to underscore is it, it doesn't require $2 million in seed capital to get to that point. No, not uh, at all. And so you did it with a team that had the relevant skills and capabilities. It probably took a few bucks, but not very much to get to get to get to that point. Um, let me turn to you, Joseph. How once you launched that, how deliberate were were how deliberate were you in terms of probing as to whether it met the needs, or were you were you just hearing it was just incoming comment unsolicited? How what was let me put that a different way? What was the process by which you yeah. you gathered that feedback? Yeah, this is such a tough question because yeah. I have to get in a year of learning into, into yeah, a couple sure. seconds. Yeah, but um, I would say the underlying theme was. First, we started just building something that we felt like was going to be useful for ourselves. So huge proponent of just building a solution to your own problems. Mm-hmm. And for us, that was that mentorship and networking right. problem. And then evolve through the customer feedback. How much we explicitly focus on those two dimensions, um, I would say it's a fair mix. Uh, we we basically went in, and I remember we had this discussion about nine or 12 months ago when we were first going to market with our first corporate customers. Basically said, we have to st- set a stake in the ground, show that we really have conviction around this product, and see how they react to it. Um, after we put that stake in the ground, we got kind of, I would say, uh, lukewarm to warm reactions, mm. but nothing that said, hey, this is really a painkiller. Um, more of this is a vitamin and yeah. potentially we'll pay yeah. for this two or three years down the road. So then we started tweaking our approach a little bit. After two or three months, after getting a lot of really insightful feedback, we started taking a little bit more of a tangential approach where we started saying, hey, what are your major problems inside your HR? Do you see this technology, this core matching technology or recommendation that we, engine that we've built? Uh, filling other potential needs inside your uh, inside your organization. Um, how can we potentially uh, address other pain points inside your organization? Whether it's actually by kind of adopting the core product or adapting the core product, or actually just by changing our marketing yeah. pitch and positioning. Yeah. Um, I would say we went back and forth, so we didn't have a perfectly systematic approach there. Mm-hmm. But we've always kind of deviated between these two ends of the spectrum. One where we said, "Hey, we have." 70% or 80% confidence in the signal from the market. Let's just say this is what we've built um, and and really uh, strongly convey that versus sometimes just having more open-ended conversations. So we would kind of A-B test between yeah. conversations. Yeah. We'll have three of those conversations and three of the latter conversations. Yeah, interesting. Um, Nikhil, I... I we we all you know you know we all love to hate HR and and and, and HR. We should laugh at that, by the yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> well, this could be my question. Yeah. I, I gotta tell you, with the exception of a f- relatively few companies, it it just in all honesty, it does not attract the the very top people in in most organizations. Let the record show that we we you don't endorse Carl's you did not statements. Say that. Well, <laughs> and this, we love HR. <laughs> well, this is my question. It, you, you know. It, if you were to ask HR what to build to fix their organization, I suspect you get a very different answer than if you ask uh, general managers who have to bear the burden of of their hiring decisions. How, how do you think about that trade off? Because yeah, your gatekeeper, your buyer, the per- person writing your ch- your check is probably HR, but they are not necessarily all that forward thinking in terms of their needs. So, well, again, I won't attribute sure. any of that to you, but that would be sure. a conjecture. How do you, how do you, how do you think about that trade-off? Yeah. 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 So it's, um, it's an important question. I think the reality is that 
things are changing. So the first wave in HR innovation was over the last 10 or 20 years. Mm. And it basically included automating the processes around the HR, the administrative side of the business. Now we're seeing HR getting a seat at the strategic table. So in the last 10 years, the amount of board representation by CHROs has doubled. Mm -hmm. Companies are starting people analytics initiatives. They're hiring chief people officers, chief diversity officers. So it's moving from an administrative function into a strategic function. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing the appropriate uh, change in talent, change in skill sets in the division. Yeah. Uh, but it is a fair point about who is your buyer mm-hmm. going into the going into the market, understanding exactly who's going to be writing the check for your product, and making sure you're speaking their language. So if you're talking to someone who reports up to a CHRO, making sure the product you're selling enables them to do their job better. Mm-hmm. That's the only way you're going to get in their budget. Mm-hmm. Good answer. Um, so, so jo- Joseph, let me let me ask you about next steps. So. I guess, well, why don't you tell me what your plan is going forward? And the particular question that I want to ask you is, to what extent has it been hard? Do you anticipate it being hard making a transition Mm -hmm. from being second year Wharton MBA student to being to running a business? And and has the Wharton experience actually been useful in making that transition? Do you expect it'll be useful in making that transition? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially as a guest on the Wharton uh, Sirius XM channel. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah, could, awesome. I could frame it. I, yeah. I really, you know, I'm professor first and mm-hmm. Wharton professor second. So I'll ask this uh, <laughs> yeah. on behalf of any business school, any absolutely. any student. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So first question around the transition, I would say we don't anticipate a, a huge difficulty in transitioning. And the reason why I say that is because for the last... 12 months, we've basically been 80% heads down on this business yeah. and really investing in that. And even flexing and, and shaping our, the curriculum choices that we make, the academic experiences that we take on to really suit mm-hmm. uh, building the venture in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I don't anticipate it's going to be huge. We also did work on this basically full-time over the summer when we were first starting out yeah. the venture. So we do have some muscle memory around what it takes to just run this full-time and build mm-hmm. it full-time. Uh, with regards to how Wharton or how broader business school has or has not been valuable, uh, I'd say it absolutely has been. Um, we're fundamentally first a data science driven company. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of what attracted both Nikhil and myself to Wharton in the first place was the expertise coming from the faculty and the research side. So had the opportunity very early on to interface with and actually work with and conduct independent research with both Adam Grant and Kate Massey, who just ho- so happened to be the heads of people analytics yeah. uh, here right at Wharton, um, were able to leverage a lot of our existing connections or uh, connections that we had built through the Wharton network, whether it's the alumni network. Um, we apologize to any alumni that have been spammed through our emails. There's been a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, people that we've met through events, um, founders and CEOs that have actually truly been mentors to us mm-hmm. and provided a lot of guidance to us, all because of the Wharton name in the first yeah. place. So broadly, absolutely, business school has been helpful. And then I can't undermine the fact that uh, there's been a lot of infrastructure put in place, especially in the last year around Penn Wharton entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. uh, more specifically the VIPX program, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the guidance that we've gotten from Jeff Babin and other advisors, the entire administrative team in Wharton, uh, Wharton entrepreneurship. That's not only kind of given us strategic guidance, but a lot of times just given us a place to work and a place to, to sleep <laughs> when, we're, uh, when we're working on this venture. All right. Well, guys, remarkably, we're out of time. But congratulations. And we're all looking forward to watching the success of Twine Labs. Thanks for coming in. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Carl. 
All right, to visit them online, twinelabs.com. If you're just joining us, I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich, and I'm the host of Launchpad, and I'm very lucky now to be joined in the studio by Thomas Uller, who's the founder of Right Air, which received second place in the Startup Challenge. Thomas, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thank you, Carl. All right, so you are an undergraduate, is that right? Yes, that's true. Yeah, so, and, and did you just finished uh, what year? I'm uh, very close to finishing my sophomore year. Yeah, so it's pretty amazing. Sophomore in college, you come in second in the Penn Wharton Startup Challenge. How'd that feel? It was incredible, really. Yeah. Uh, even when we <clears throat> when we got through to be finalists, I was uh, just completely thrilled. It was great. Yeah. You know, I have a I have a son who's a sophomore at Penn, and uh, uh, you may know him, Nathan. But but anyway, Nate and uh, Nate is in the same year you, and I've had to go through this strange transition, which is realizing, wait a second, my students are the same age as my kids now, so I'm going through a little bit of that mind-warping experience. But um, what you're doing is super impressive. Give us the elevator pitch for Right Air. I'll try to keep it brief, but uh, as everything in healthcare, it's a bit complicated. Okay. So our product addresses uh, COPD, which is also called called emphysema, and in the U.S., that has a population around 15 million with 2 million of those patients having severe COPD where they are unable to even walk up a flight of stairs because mm. it so severely affects the res- respiratory system. Um, so this is a big uh, issue with quality of life for patients, but it's also a big financial burden on the healthcare system because these patients typically incur about $30,000 of a in a hospital visit, and they have a readmittance rate of about one in five COPD patients are readmitted 30 days after their initial visit, yeah. which adds up very quickly. Yeah. What our device does is it enables, uh, uses pressures to make it easier for the patients to both breathe in and breathe out. That improves their quality of life and makes them more active. But it also addresses the healthcare burden in that more, the biggest factor in lowering readmission rates for COPD patients is activity and exercise. So we believe that this solution of enabling patients to become more active will both improve the quality of life for the individual patient and also help out insurers in the healthcare system overall. Yeah. So before we get into the solution, which is really interesting, I want to talk just another minute about the problem. So is this is this primarily a a muscular and skeletal problem of moving the lungs or is it a problem in the way the lungs take up oxygen? It's a mechanical issue. Okay. So it isn't um, supplemental oxygen is used as a solution for COPD, mm. but it's found to be very ineffective and mm. doesn't quite get to the core of the issue, which is the respiratory muscles exhausting. Mm-hmm. And are the, is it, just to get in the weeds just a little bit on this, are the, are the respiratory muscles somehow singled out by this disease, or is it a muscular, muscular degeneration more generally and just happens to show up in the lungs first? It's the respiratory muscles being uh, singled out due to the, um, well, there are a couple different causes mm-hmm. of COPD, but they all have to do with, um, they all damage the respiratory system in the mm. muscles in a certain mm. way. So it's not a general uh, yeah. like muscle degeneration issue. Really, really interesting. And it does it does it disproportionately affect smokers or are smokers just uh, more sensitive to it? Smokers are a, a huge part of the COPD problem. Yeah. Um, so they're related. Smoking is related to the disease itself. Entirely, yeah. yes. Okay, got it. All right, and then and then just to underscore the problem statement even a little bit further, many people have emphysema or COPD, but these 2 million 
literally can't walk a flight of stairs because they can't get enough oxygen to fuel their muscles. Is that is that right? Yeah. Um, well, it's not quite an oxygen issue. But okay. Actually, you're right. You are right in a way. Um, it's that they're unable to perform gas exchange mechanically, mm-hmm. which stops them from being able to get the oxygen in. But um, it's... But, you know, giving hooking them up to an oxygen tank doesn't fix the problem Agreed. the same way the mechanics. It, it would if to. you could inject the oxygen into the blood. Right. But uh, so it, it but the, but the bottleneck is they can't they can't inflate their lungs at a sufficient rate. And the net effect is it feels to them as if they're experiencing extremely strenuous, strenuous right. activity. Right. It's compared to a feeling of suffocation for yeah. these patients, even for one flight of stairs. Yeah. So it's an ex, you know, we talk about. We, we we talk about products that are painkillers versus vitamin pills. Uh, what you're trying to do is not make a vitamin pill at all. You're, it's very much a painkiller, which is this is a a suffocating problem, literally, for people, and you have a solution. Correct. All right. What's the solution? How does it work? So yeah. our device is a vest mm-hmm. that's worn over the front on the patient's, uh, the front of their torso, mm-hmm. and it hooks on to a machine um, which sits on the back of their hip. Mm-hmm. And so most of the weight is distributed onto the back of their hip on the device. Um, and what the vest does is, is it makes a vacuum, which allows for the patient to more easily take air in mm-hmm. and then puts pressure on the bottom muscles. So it allows them to more easily let air flow out. Mm-hmm. And and describe it for us a little bit. What is it, it, you said vest, but it, um, what, what does it look like right. on the patient? Yeah. So one of the beginning iterations was a very bulky vest. Mm-hmm. It looks a bit like someone's wearing um, a giant rectangular prism on their chest. Yeah. But we've uh, gone through lots of uh, you know newer iterations, and we've uh, been able to size it down a lot. So it looks, you can tell that there's still a device on the person, mm-hmm. but they don't quite look like a you know, tin robot uh, yeah. wearing human skin. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've so rounded now, the corners for yeah. sure. Yeah. So now the device is closer. We have it down to about five pounds, and looking to get yeah. a little bit smaller. Um, whereas most of the weight does come on the back of the hips, which is the best place for these patients to yeah. be carrying so much weight. Yeah. yeah, I would describe it almost as. You know, it's like one half of a turtle shell that sits on your on your front, right? That's a great way to describe yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, and 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 the reason that works, that turtle shell, is is a structural is a structure against which you can pull a mechanically you can pull with a vacuum correctly correct on the on the chest wall. Is that what you're doing? Right. Yeah. So it's mainly it's mainly the pressures, uh, both. So the positive pressure and negative pressure as a result of having no positive pressure mm-hmm. that uh, enables the respiratory muscles assistance. All right. So you 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 create a little vacuum in that shell. It pulls pull, it assists in pulling the the chest wall out, and that allows the the the, the patient to breathe. Right. And you've got a little motor or something, batteries and motors to create that vacuum. How do you create the vacuum? Correct. So that's located in the um, on the device in the back of their yep. hip with a tube that connects to the vest yeah and then you have a dial on um on the hip device that Mm -hmm. enables the pressure to be built up in the chest um greater pressure or less pressure depending on the patient's preference and 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 what would be the simple the typical duration of of a of a user user experience with the device would they wear it all day would they wear it when they're going out to play with the grandkids when would they wear it so the patient would wear it anytime that they're doing um great activity so Mm -hmm. to speak i mean you know each patient is different so some patients might be able to walk around the house and not have as much of an issue with the device where some patients might find it to be a huge help yeah whereas i think if any patient is going for a walk 
um, just for exercise or they're going to be going up and down the stairs. They'll want to be wearing the device so yeah. they can get that assistance. Yeah. All right. Well, did you come to the University of Pennsylvania as a freshman with this idea in your head? Where did it come Not from? exactly. <laughs> I, um, so Jake Brenner is um, another founder, and I work in a lab with him. He's uh -huh. a pulmonologist, um, MD-PhD, who splits his time between treating patients um, in the intensive care unit, like yeah. COPD patients, where he also spends time in the lab, um, we, we work on uh, drug delivery, so a bit of a separate idea in the lab. Mm -hmm. But I came onto the team uh, with him, uh, willing to work on it. So, so say a little bit more, because I think you know this is not, of course, the typical pathway for entrepreneurs. But y y did you start working as a freshman in that in that lab? Um, just uh, actually, just this year in the okay, so you tail start, end of the summer. So you you started working just this academic year, nine months ago or whatever. In, in a lab, presumably to just get some experience in your interest in healthcare, right? Right. Is, yeah. And 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 then your your lab supervisor, faculty member, had had in, had invented the basic idea. Was right. that right? Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And and was he so this is this is interesting. Was he envisioning it as a commercial product and and said, Hey, can you help me out with this? How how did you guys get connected yeah, yeah. um yeah. so jake had started device companies in the past mm -hmm. he's a bit of a serial entrepreneur yep. as a uh, phrase goes and he had come up with this idea done a little bit of tinkering around and then had talked to uh two engineers um or merrick and michael on the team uh both at drexel and then they started just tinkering with it um mm -hmm. And then Jake also knows a lot of um physicians on the medical side who've been helping getting the clinical trials set up um and the rest of that. So Jake did have the idea from the get-go. Yeah. But I, I guess the thing I would underscore about this, which is fairly typical of entrepreneurship, which is you as the CEO, founder, member of the founding team do not necessarily have to be the inventor, the originator of the technology if there's a technology involved. So these kinds of partnerships are quite typical. And in this case, quite synergistic because this is a guy who has a, a career and a profession that he probably is not willing to put on po pause to per pursue this commercialization opportunity but he can put a team together and together you guys can can go after it correct yeah, yeah. yeah so give me a sense of of the resources required the had had have you have you raised any money until until now until the price prize winnings we have um so we had a bit of a weird path because mm -hmm. pen um so this uh this idea it spun out of pen yeah uh, as coming from Jake as a faculty member. Mm -hmm. So Penn does have a little bit of equity in it. I see. And then yeah. also we've raised some money from grants, mm -hmm. uh, just enough to get our clinical trial this year running. Um, and then we're also like looking to raise more capital for um, FDA clearance um, by the end of 2019. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I guess the an interesting aside that I'll just put out to our listeners, it, virtually every research university has a technology transfer uh, office, a, a program related to technology transfer of university research. And those are often pretty good places to look for interesting things that are going on at, in the universities. And there's often an identify an opportunity to identify an opportunity like the one Thomas and Jake are, are pursuing. An invention comes out of university or cl clinical research at a university. The tech transfer office is notified, and then they typically will look for opportunities for partners to help them commercialize. So it, it's actually that particular pathway is not all that unusual and is a way for people to connect with 
uh, with inventors in 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 life sciences and and in healthcare. What's the what's the next step? So you've got this thing, and first of all, tell me how you're doing on the on the proof points. So what what have you shown to date? So we've been able to show that we can create. Well, I guess starting back a little bit, our device yeah. is based around uh, like a cuirass ventilator technology, yeah. which is similar to like an iron lung that was used in you know very early on in the 20th century. And so we've shown that our device, which is now mobile compared to a stationary iron lung, Mm -hmm. can create similar pressures Mm -hmm. um, on a normal person, but the pressures would be the same for any patient. So we've shown that 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 it can fulfill its function of creating the pressures needed to assist ventilations. Mm -hmm. Um, And at this point, we're looking, we have clinical trials set up actually this month now that it's May. Um, looking to begin and take around 20 patients who have se- severe COPD mm-hmm. and um, have them do a diagnostic test with and without the device. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, we hope to uh, go through a slightly easier FTA uh, regulation pathway called 510K clearance. Mm-hmm. And um, we're hoping to use the clinical trials as precedence and hopefully get that 510K clearance wrapped up by the end of 2019. Yeah. So, so, uh, uh, just to underscore, anytime FDA is required, as it is for most medical devices, there are a variety of pathways. This one's the best or the easiest because what you're arguing is that your device is similar to some other device in terms of its health effects and the way it works. So that's a nice a nice pathway. Um, if we, we just have about a minute left, but, but Thomas, has this experience changed the way you think about your career path? Tell us a little bit about what you're thinking about doing with the rest of your time at Penn and then beyond. Yeah. Um, it definitely has. Uh, so I came in not totally sure what to do. I knew I really liked science and I liked business. And so combining the two in healthcare in some way was something fantastic that, uh, a fantastic thought. But, uh, the more time I've been here, the more I think I want to go to medical school and practice with patients. But mm-hmm. this has also made me realize that aside from, um, practicing and seeing patients, I can also make entrepreneurship, uh, especially in medical devices that make a huge impact on, different individuals' lives and their health, um, I can make that a part of my career. Yeah. Well, that's inspiring, Thomas, and congratulations, and thanks so much for coming in the studio. Thank you for having me. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm very lucky to be joined in this studio by Mitch Gaynor and Mark Geisner, co-founders of CitySense Technologies, who took home third prize in the Startup Challenge. Mitch and Mark, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. You guys all relaxed after completing the challenge? Very much so. It was a wild ride leading up to it, and we had uh, a few beers this weekend, and now we're ready to get going on the next phase. All right. Very nice. Well, let me first steps. Do you, do you have a do you have a webpage, someplace people could go to check out what you're up to? We do. It's www.citysensetech.com. That's C-I-T-Y-S-E-N-S-E-T-E-C-H.com. Great. So if you're someplace safe and at a web browser, just go to citysensetech.com to get a sense of what CitySense is all, all about. But because this is radio and because this is the way to get started, let's start with the elevator pitch. So uh, let's see. Let me see. How about, how about you, Mitch? Can you do it? Sure, absolutely. All right. So uh, municipal water utilities lose $14 billion every year from water loss leaks, faulty meters, water theft. CitySense provides analytic services that identify and stops this, this, this waste. All right, so take us down into the 
into what are probably the wet weeds. Where do the where do the, where do these leaks happen? Yeah, yeah, so there are a lot of different places they can come from. Mm-hmm. One is uh, over time meters degrade, right? They read uh, inaccurately, and as a result, they underreport how much water is being consumed. We help identify what meters are degrading faster than others and prioritize their replacement. Another area is uh, a meter may just simply break, read zero, or it may be broken by someone else. And in that case, we can prioritize its replacement as well and identify when we think consumption is actually happening at a property, although it may not be registering on the city's existing technologies. So these aren't these aren't literal leaks in most cases. Then this isn't like a a a leaky a leaky water main somewhere that 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 you're detecting that these this is this is financial leakage in the sense that the meters are not working properly. Yeah. That's absolutely right. It's yeah. both. A portion of the financial leakage is from a leaky water main, mm-hmm. but a large part of it actually comes at the meter level, and mm. that's where this lost revenue comes from. Mm. Now. As a just as a naive observer, I would expect the errors to be random and some to be high and some to be low. But that's not the case. The meters, their systematic bias is to read low. You Correct. see, my, you get my you get my question. I mean, if 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 sometimes it's reading a little high, sometimes it's reading a little low. On average, the city's still getting paid, but the the systematic bias is that meters read low. Is that right? That's right. So a meter has a small turbine in it, and mm-hmm. over time, that turbine turns less well. That's why the systematic bias is towards the lower end. Okay. All right. So I'm guessing that you don't go around with a stethoscope and listen to meters. Uh, Although maybe you could. How, how, how do you how do you figure out whether a meter is leaking? Uh, well, that's why I'm so grateful for my co-founders. That's the uh, beautiful analytics that, that Mark and, and Christoph joined. All right. So let me turn it to Mark. How do, stethoscope, uh, listening to meters? N- not exactly. Yeah. So effectively, we take proprietary parcel data. So the number of bedrooms in a house or the size of a lawn. Mm-hmm. Match that with the private utility data mm-hmm. and run a number of big data machine learning analytics that highlight meters that are systematically underperforming. Okay. So so let's say I don't know what big data analytics means. I sort of don't, actually, despite having a PhD in AI. But uh, so if you can just walk us through it, another level of detail. Give us, an, give us an example of an analytic insight that would give you a cue that there might be a meter not underperforming. Yeah, absolutely. So for instance, let's, this true story happened with one of our clients. You have a functioning distillery. That functioning distillery has used zero water over the past year. Doesn't quite seem right to us mm-hmm. that a distillery doesn't use any water. Yeah, but that doesn't need big data. That You could use small data for that. You can, yeah, I mean, you can use small data for that as well, but another example would be a lawn meter. That lawn meter across all lawn meters in our current client mm-hmm. uses 33% less water on average, than a house of equivalent lawn size, there's probably something wrong with that meter. Yeah. So, I mean, to your point, I don't think we limit ourselves to big data analytics. Yeah. I think it's it's smartly combining some small data analytics yeah. with some larger, more statistically significant yeah. data analysis. Um, Mitch, do you yet have a window into... And if if this bear crush for Mike Mark just passed the baton, do you do you have a do you have an indication yet of what the incidence of false positives are? So you're 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 trying to identify these meters that could potentially be leaking, and 
and presumably you rank order them in some sense. But but how good a signal is that? How good a predictor is it? Yeah, so that's a great question. One of the hypotheses that we're going through in testing ourselves, uh, we have two ongoing pilots. We've wrapped up one of the first phases of one of those pilots, which mm -hmm. is identifying and prioritizing a portion of these meters. Mm -hmm. And as we speak today, they're going out, pulling those meters, testing them, and sending us back the results. So a big part of this entire process for us has been coming up with hypotheses, testing and disproving them. And that's the next one up on our list. Yeah. Okay, great. So, so you know, I think a great answer to that question is you're early on, and that's one of the things you have to answer. But, but you did mention you used we, and the we wasn't the two of you. So who, who can you get to cooperate with that kind of experiment, that kind of exploration? Yeah, absolutely. So since the startup competition, we've had a number of utilities reach out to us that we started talking to. Mm -hmm. But before the competition, we had two pilot cities. One was uh, Tampa, Florida, and the other is Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. They've been amazingly cooperative in terms of you know seeing where we can deliver value for them and what that exactly means for us and our ongoing relationship. You know, I, I'm a I'm an investor in a in another alumni founded company, a company called Gridium that does very similar things for electricity data. Mm -hmm. And one of the frustrations with that business has been just how long the sales cycle is. We we sell to commercial office buildings, but I would think governments would even be harder to mm -hmm. sell to. So has that proven to be a challenge? And and maybe to put it more precisely, as a startup, how did you get those first two pilots? pilot cities. Yeah. So, I mean, on how did we get them? My yeah. background before coming to Wharton was in government. Mm -hmm. I worked in the Obama administration. I worked with over 100 mayors across the United States. Mm -hmm. So those first conversations, even landing on the concept of water utilities in the first place, was through conversations with those mayors, through conversations with chief data officers, where we knew we wanted to provide accessible analytics to local governments and what exactly that means and how can we do that based on the existing data that they pull today. Mm -hmm. um, so it was me on the phone hustling, yeah. getting those first few customers and yeah. you know convincing them that this is a partnership worth their while and that they can see a return on their invested time in us. Mm -hmm. And what was the ask of those first cities? You weren't asking them to pay, presumably, just, just to help. The, the yeah. first two, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. It was, look, you know, our background's in big data. Mm -hmm. That's the expertise that we have. Mm -hmm. We think we can do some smart things here. Share your data with us. We'll share some insights with, with you. See if we can prove out this concept and see if we can help save the city some money, which obviously benefits you. Yeah. So let's see if we can underscore the the principle for our listeners. In it, With any product or service, there's going to be a set of lead users. They're going to help you craft your service offering, your product or service offering. The average consumer, the average user probably is going to say no to that offer. So you probably have to make a, a lot of calls, a lot of inquiries, but there will almost certainly be somebody out on the edge who is both either experiences the pain more acutely than others or is just interested in trying new stuff. So I, I guess the advice would be to people out there listening, you know, don't be discouraged. And it probably is going to take 100 calls to find those early adopters. I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, we certainly faced our share of no's. And one thing that was very different from our previous jobs when mm -hmm. we weren't working in entrepreneurship is that doing this, the highs are way higher and the lows are way lower. And when you're personally invested in this, it just is an entirely different ballgame for you. So those no's are more discouraging than I ever imagined, mm -hmm. but the yeses were more encouraging than I ever imagined too. All right. Uh, 
Mark, we can keep Mitch honest now. What's your version of that story? Well, I was going to compliment Mitch, I think. <laughs> like a great co-founder. <laughs> There's one one other piece of thing that Mitch did really well, and it was he phrased the effort required by those first initial customers as something that was quite minimal. Mm-hmm. And it was you know, the first ask to an initial customer is not give us everything. Mm-hmm. It was just give us something mm-hmm. and let us take that little bit of something and prove we have value and then give us the next thing. Mm-hmm. And that incremental approach made it way easier. So we still got some no's and we got a lot of them, mm-hmm. but not as many as if you said we need everything yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mark, maybe you can fill us in on on this team and how it came together and how it came together relative to the timing of the idea, that sort of thing. Yeah, so Mitch and I live together, uh-huh. and we worked together previous time to school. So, you know, Mitch and I are bumming around the apartment, having a great time. Mitch goes, I think I got an analytics idea. Mm. You did analytics, right? I said, yeah, great. You want to work on it? Sure. Uh, and a very similar thing happened with our other co-founder where mm-hmm. Mitch and him worked previously in, in D.C. together. Mm-hmm. So it was just a very nice coincidence. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how to generalize that insight. You know, ask your roommate. I mean, that, that uh, was pretty fortuitous in in many ways, right? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of this is yeah. fortune. Yeah. And it's about setting yourself up to have lucky situations, mm-hmm. right? Coming here, I knew Mark was a smart guy that I've worked with before, and I really liked. And he's going to think about school in a smart way. He's going to have friends that I'm interested in too. And Mm -hmm. when I have a cool idea, I really want to bounce it off him. And Mm -hmm. so setting yourself up for that fortune and leaving room for serendipity, I think is the the big takeaway there. Yeah. Take me back to the beginnings uh, for for you, Mitch. Were you, when you came to Wharton, you you guys are, are both about to graduate. Right. Or no, you're your first years. We're first years. Ah. We're the only first year team to to be finalists, I think. Wow. Okay. So this is really this is even more interesting. So this is in your first year. You put this together. So tell me a little bit about where the idea came relative to your deciding to attend Wharton mm-hmm. and then how you think about being the founder of a startup while trying to do school. So g- give me a sense of that. Yeah. 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 So having gotten into Wharton, knowing that I was coming here, mm-hmm. leaving the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Um, I kept hearing over and over again from mayors that they wish they could use data to help run their city more efficiently, Mm -hmm. that there are a lot of barriers there, especially for smaller cities, maybe not New York, but certainly my hometown, you know, Columbus, Ohio or Little Rock, Arkansas. And so how exactly can we help deliver value for them was the question that I had on day one. And it was literally as vague as that. And it was through conversations and interviews and classmates encouraging me to keep going that led to discovering this idea with city-run water utilities. Mm -hmm. In terms of being a student while doing that, there's a lot of synergies between the two. One is access to amazing faculty who can tell you that your idea is awful, like like our original idea was, Mm -hmm. right? We had maybe 15 or 20 iterations of this before we landed on the one that we're on now. Another way is the class, uh, the classmates that we have. There's so much talent just in the knowledge other people have that when I, you know, sent to one of the email listservs, has anyone worked in water utilities before? Ten people happen to be experts in that field. I don't know what other listserv I can email that I would get ten people willing to talk to me about municipal water utilities. Yeah. So, um, it, I mean, it was hugely synergistic for us, and uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a wild ride. Yeah, um, Mark, when you came to Wharton, did you have entrepreneurial aspirations? Tell us a little bit about your background. 
Yeah, so I came here wanting to try something different. Mm -hmm. And it so happened that Mitch and I were talking, and this was the different thing I chose. I, I very much have always been interested in analytics. I studied math and chemistry. I did analytics pre-Wharton. Um, so it worked out well. Mm -hmm. I think on the question of you know, balancing startup and students, maybe just a more general student life and maybe just a more general statement for those not in school is like you make trade-offs with mm -hmm. whatever you do. And I think being successful in the startup, it may be why we've pushed pretty hard over our first year to, to be here today is we were very smart in those trade-offs and mm -hmm. we have a rapid prioritization methodology uh, and thinking about when does it really make sense to do something, both in the startup and in your personal or academic life, has really helped us uh, be here. Yeah. All right. So we just have 30 seconds. Um, Mark, what, what, what do you guys got going for the summer? What's next? Working on this. Yeah. I think we're both very excited to continue on this journey and yeah. talk to more cities. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming in to the studio. Thank you for having us. This was great. All right. So I'm going to point our listeners once again to your to your website, citysensetech.com. If you want to check it out, shout, give them a shout. If you're out there in a municipal government, these guys can help. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.